Welcome to Talking About Cities, the podcast that connects you with leading innovators working to revitalize cities across America. We talk to the thinkers and doers facing the challenges and celebrating the promise of cities today. I'm your host, Carol Coletta of the Kresge Foundation. And today we're talking to Shannon Mattern about the changing nature of media and those critical public spaces in our communities, libraries. Shannon is assistant professor in the School of Media Studies at the New School in New York. She is also a columnist for Places, a journal focusing on architecture, urbanism, and landscape. She is the author of several books, The New Downtown Library, Designing with Communities, Deep Mapping the Media City, and her newest, Code and Clay, Data and Dirt, 5,000 Years of Urban Media. Shannon, media itself is now in the media spotlight. I'm not sure I ever heard the term fake news until the last presidential campaign. How do you describe the media landscape today and how do you expect it to evolve? Oh my, those are huge questions. Well, obviously we're using a lot of new terminology, thanks in large part to the new regime in Washington, things like fake news and filter bubbles, but these are definitely not new phenomena. Before the age of mass communication, for instance, a lot of communication, a lot of media was essentially in very much filtered streams or very atomized. The idea of fake news is essentially hearkening back to a field of communication studies that's existed since the First World War, propaganda studies. Fake news is kind of an extension of propaganda, which again, has existed for for centuries, if not millennia, but has had a, a word for it, a term for it, for uh, which has evolved itself for quite a while. So these aren't new phenomena. But of course, contemporary technologies, digital technologies, the fact that they are ubiquitous, that they're mobile, that they are always on kind of exacerbates some trends that have been in existence for a very long time. And what does that mean for building trust that underpins community and our ability to problem solve in a democracy? Well, I think also even the whole concept of how trust is founded, what it means is in part determined by uh, these things are shaped. Even our concepts of truth, of veracity are shaped by the media that are available at at a given time. For example, in an oral culture, before writing, for instance, you gave your word. That was essentially all you had to give. And that was good enough to give someone confidence in the fact that there was some veracity to what you were saying. We have the phrase, you know, the seeing is believing, which is a product of the enlightenment and for instance. We sign forms to indicate our kind of promise to uphold certain agreements. So I think that today with our new contemporary or our new media technologies, they are also kind of further shaping kind of our social contracts that we establish with one another. I think also the fact that we have come to realize as we have become more media savvy about the limitations of our existing technologies, that there's a lot of room for manipulation. Even photographs, which one once seemed to be rather verifiable, you know, snapshots of truth. We recognize how easy it is to manipulate them, how they can be used for nefarious purposes. Uh, I realize that's a rather depressing answer. I think there are things that can be done and things that a lot of institutions and individual activist groups are doing to essentially use these same technologies for kind of more pro-social applications. Libraries are one of them. Well, I, and I want to talk with mm-hmm. you about libraries, but first I want to think about facts and data and this mm-hmm. notion of the smart city, because certainly you have a lot of technology companies that have been 
promoting this idea of the smart city for some time, then the Bloomberg innovation grants for cities that, that accelerated the focus on smart cities. And certainly now with Alphabet getting into the business of smart cities with sidewalk labs and doing the test in Toronto, it's an interesting moment, I think, to consider what is a smart city and the role that data play and perhaps don't play in making a city a smart city. Talk about the generally accepted definition today of the smart city, where you see value in that and where you see some blind spots. Okay, so there is obviously uh, a lot of discussion about the smart city. Several academics have recognized that the way the smart city is defined is quite diverse in different discourse communities. If you look at the engineering community, at the urban tech community, at the civic tech community, at the government community, they all have a very different definition of what a smart city is. So many people want to jump on the bandwagon that I think we've kind of made that the category or the container very elastic so that in some cases, it's really just a matter of taking existing cities with their existing infrastructure and embedding some type of kind of algorithmic governance system or incorporating some more sensors, retrofitting old technological systems. In many cases, it's a much more ambitious kind of tabula rasa vision where you're building from scratch. It's a vision of building the city from the internet up. So there are a myriad definitions of what constitutes a smart city. In many cases, what it boils down to is using technology and data-driven methodologies to increase the efficiency and other values. I think the values that people are aiming towards, their end goals vary as well. In some cases, all that smartness is supposed to lead up to greater efficiency. Efficiency might not be the desired end goal in all cases. Maybe slowness is actually preferable in some cases. Other people think that it will add up to something more just, to greater sustainability. Sustainability. So there are lots of values, kind of ideologies that you can plug in there as the desired end goal for smartness. Some of the benefits of thinking about smart cities are that it recognizes that a city is inherently a place of intelligence. The cities have for a long time essentially been kind of like a community of people and the spaces they build, the infrastructures they construct are in large part, and one of their large purposes is to essentially contain and store and facilitate the circulation of all the collective intelligence they've built and to maintain their history as well. So cities do kind of serve that information processing, information kind of preservation role. One of the problems of reducing all of that to smartness is that smart is typically kind of a proprietary black box way of thinking about intelligence. It does reduce all of the different kind of myriad forms of intelligence built into a city or any built environment to something that can be kind of datafied and algorithmicized, which brackets out a lot of the older, embodied, often marginalized or indigenous for other species forms of intelligence that actually contribute to that whole epistemological ecology as well. Given where the discussion is today, do you think it's possible to evolve the smart city discussion to have a different set of outcomes other than efficiency? You talk about slowness. I, I, I don't know of any smart city discussion that is uh, has as its desired outcome slowness. I think there is lip service, perhaps paid to issues, for instance, such as social equity. But mm -hmm. you know, is that really at the center of any of the smart city work? I don't really see it. In fact, I think most of it is probably reinforcing existing inequities. You may have other examples, and if so, I, you may want to push back, and I'd love to hear it. But it feels certainly that the 
overarching idea in smart cities is to become more efficient, to provide perhaps for better decision-making, more informed decision-making based on data. Can it evolve? I think it already has evolved to some degree, if only rhetorically, which hopefully will actually transform from the rhetoric actually becomes action on the ground. I think a lot of organizations, including sidewalk labs, have recognized that it's not enough to talk about efficiency, that that brackets out a lot of folks for whom their day-to-day kind of needs are much deeper, much lower on Maslow's hierarchy of needs than just efficiency. So they, at least the columns that they claim to be working in, the sectors or spaces they claim to be working in, are talking about housing which they do frame in terms of things like equity and quality of life. They talk about healthcare as well, and they have launched, I think in partnership with some other organizations that really intended to work with folks who are on the margins of society, who tend to rely on social services and Medicare and Medicaid. So I do think that discourse is evolving. But of course, as you're working with those more marginalized populations, those stickier social problems, there are all kinds of issues of ethics and privacy that have to be addressed as well. And I think, again, they do recognize that. It's just making sure that multiple communities are part of those discussions. So what privacy and ethics are driving them are not determined solely by tech companies. We're talking today with Shannon Mattern, Associate Professor in the School of Media Studies at the New School in New York. Where does social fit into the smart city? I don't know that I have seen, and I might have just missed some people talking about this, but I don't know that I have um, seen anyone developing a convincing vision of a smart city using all these technologies explicitly or as a byproduct of their other activities to specifically increase the kind of diverse types of interactions in a city. One thing that could potentially have that effect is, although I question its applicability, is the idea of using technologies for more kind of performance-based zoning. So that rather than having zoning that is really kind of um, segregating cities based on certain kind of use, you can have essentially the activity much more mixed up and have commerce mixed with perhaps light industrial with residential, which could potentially bring more different types of populations together. It's interesting. I teach a, a graduate studio in the spring called Urban Intelligence, where we Look at smart city, kind of a lot of the, the corporate rhetoric, the commercial kind of appeals, and then historicize it, break it apart, look at all the different other ways cities are smart. And one of my students last year, um, their project was essentially to design prototypes of furnishings and other types of street furnishings that would intentionally slow people down to create friction and promote kind of what they were calling like agonistic democratic interactions. So getting people off of their cell phones and using the city's physical form itself to actually force different populations to get together, to force people to slow down and interact and kind of uh, celebrate their shared experiences. The concept, I think, was really lovely. And I think it also acknowledged that not all of our solutions are counteractions to technology. If we want to essentially undermine or undo technology's uh, seeming kind of um, drive to make us become atomized and narcissistically focused on our devices, maybe we don't use technology to fix that problem. Maybe the way to fix that narcissistic focus on the screen is using another type of urban intervention, like the physical space of the city itself or furnishings. So not all technologically derived problems have to be solved by technology itself. Well, I have to admit, I'd love to see the product of their work because I think it's a, I think you were asking the students the right question. And 
It's a question that we're asking with this, this national initiative we have underway called Reimagining the Civic Commons, looking at how parks, libraries, neighborhood cultural centers can be thought of as a civic commons to add value to the surrounding neighborhood, to amplify civic engagement and sustainability, and also, and I think maybe most importantly, to create that space where people of different incomes mix in place together which again, I think is mm-hmm. fundamental to building trust. And I don't find enough of us asking that question. And so I find it really interesting that, you're, that you ask that question, good for you, and I'd love to see the results. I'd love for you to keep asking <laughs> the question. You mentioned libraries earlier, and I know that you said that librarians specifically have a lot to bring to the table as we think about the smart city and creating the smart city. Talk about their unique role, their proclivities, and what they know that the rest of us don't. Okay, well, because librarians have always been kind of in the public lifelong education business, they recognize the different types of intelligence that different sectors of the population bring to the table, the different specific educational needs that people who might not have gone through the public school system or might have arrived as immigrants, for instance, the specific pedagogical and social service needs that they have, and the specific ways to reach those populations. So I think recognizing that librarians have long been kind of para-educators themselves, and they have, by necessity, also served as social service workers in many cases. They recognize all the different educational roles that a civic institution might need to play. So they are very much attuned to all the different types of, again, intelligence that the population represents and how to enhance or increase the forms of intelligence they need. I think librarians have also been very much committed to issues of privacy, ethical use of information, to the concept of the commons, for instance, of making resources available democratically. So these are not often values that are kind of central to a a lot of urban tech discussions as well. So I think if librarians were also part of the discussion, they could help to historicize, add an ethical dimension, and other kind of social concerns to that discourse that aren't always there already. Are there library systems around the country that you think are on the leading edge? Let's see. I think I would have to think about that a bit. I I am on the board of the New York Metropolitan Library Council here in New York City, which serves um, not only libraries and archives and information institutions within the city itself, but also in kind of Westchester County as well. And the leadership there is very much interested and even has developed some preliminary partnerships with city agencies, the tech community, the data analytics groups in the mayor's office. So I think New York, again, just based as an easy example for me because it's one I know fairly well, has attempted to insert maybe a little bit aggressively and proactively to demonstrate to these other organizations that libraries do have a lot to offer to these other types of discussions. There are other cities with progressive library systems who I'm sure are involved. Um, I know Los Angeles, Chicago, both have big kind of urban data programs. I would imagine that their library systems are also, I would hope at least, given how advanced and how public their kind of urban data and civic tech discussions are, that their library systems would be involved in those discussions also. You may feel this is beyond your field, so okay, fair warning. But you wrote a book on downtown libraries several years ago, Uh, the big central Mm -hmm. libraries, sort of the glamour libraries that we've always built and continue to build. And yet many of those libraries are supremely challenged with the social aspects of their work, managing populations, 
that perhaps are not served by social services centers or settlement houses or homeless centers, et cetera. And it's put librarians in a business that, you know, I wonder if they ever really signed up for, but they do it nonetheless because that's who comes through their door. Two questions. One, do you think that responsibility that has fallen to libraries because of the absence of other pieces of the social safety net is uh, problematic to libraries serving a more traditional lifelong learning responsibility. And two, I'm curious how you think about the argument that some would make of the downtown glamour libraries get all the resources and the branch neighborhood libraries are ignored. How do you see that evolving? Well, I'll take the second one first. And I did choose for the first book, which I wrote over 15 years ago now. This came out of my dissertation research. So I did choose to focus on the downtown glamour, we could say, uh, downtown libraries. And even then, there were lots of discussions within these cities, particularly when they were facing bond issues or kind of uh, certain types of developing city policies and funding structures, how to reconcile the needs of the branches, which people were very attached to, with the needs of the downtown library. So this tension has been there for a very long time, but that's, I think what I hoped to address in the book was the fact that it didn't need to be a tension, that the branches were served, the downtown library with all of its kind of architectural glamour was still provided vital logistical administrative functions to allow the branches to function, especially when you have library systems in which they have a circulating book collection or uh, like they do in New York and Brooklyn. Those centralized systems play a very vital role to allow the branches to just perform the functions they need. That is definitely a tension, but I hope that through recognizing that it's more of an ecology, that we have to recognize that the downtown central library and the branches kind of perform functions that allow each other to do their best work. But that has to be calibrated, obviously. But I think this whole ecology metaphor can be really useful in thinking about your first question as well, in terms of how a library fits into a larger system of social and educational services in a community. Specifically because as funding and staffing has been cut for a lot of existing social services, libraries, as you have mentioned, have ended up being kind of the default pickers up of what's left, of what others aren't performing. This is something that maybe it is not fair to ask librarians to provide, although that said, some library schools have already and are talking about incorporating more social service type of training within the traditional um, MLIS program. Whether that is an appropriate use of their time, what that says about the state of kind of social services is to be questioned. But I think it is also kind of noble and commendable of librarians to recognize that this is, whether we like it or not, something that has become you know part of our plate now that we have to deal with. And we might as well prepare our staff to handle the challenge. I wrote an article, I think maybe three or four years ago now, called Library as Infrastructure, where I look at this very challenge. The question, the subtitle, I think, or the subhead was, how far can we stretch the public library? So it is essentially like a homeless shelter and a place for kids to meet, latchkey kids to meet after school. And it is often the library system for school systems that don't have their own library system or that are not well serviced. So how much can we put within the kind of the mission statement or put in within the programmatic list of a public library before it essentially becomes overstuffed? 
and its physical infrastructure, its its technological infrastructures, how far can we stretch those so that they can still support all of these programs we're asking a library to provide? That's a question I don't have the answer to. Libraries have tended to be very kind of accommodating and capacious, but I don't know that we should be asking them to do so much. Nor do I. <laughs> it is, uh, I think it is a serious challenge. Um, it's such a timely topic and you speak so beautifully about media that I'm sorry we haven't met before now, but I'm glad we finally did. Thanks so much. Me too, yes, I'd love to keep in touch. Sharon Mattern is Associate Professor in the School of Media Studies at the New School in New York. Thanks for listening. You can always hear the latest Talking About Cities podcasts and the archive of past shows at kresge.org. There you'll also find links to learn more about our guest. Contact us at talkingaboutcities at kresge.org with your questions and suggestions. I'd love to hear from you. I'm your host, Carol Coletta, Senior Fellow with the Kresge Foundation's American Cities Practice. And until next time, let's keep talking about cities.